So today is Pentecost Sunday. It's the day that the church all over the world celebrates the birthday that God gave us. 2,000 years ago, God birthed the church by the power of his Holy Spirit. And when he did that, we heard this read, uh, Russ read it to us out of Acts chapter 2. On, in this event, the, uh, the, the Pentecost event, when he filled this group of people with his spirit, it's interesting, in, in, in Hebrew, the word for spirit is the same as the word for wind. And it is kind of this double entendre in the story. It's not only that a spirit descends on them, it's also that they get blown out into the streets. This ragtag group of unimpressive Christ followers, they're blown out of that upper room into the streets. And you keep reading, and the cities and the cultures of this world. And now to understand why God did this, and to understand what it means for us today, the church of the incarnation. To understand that, we've got to know the story within which the events of Pentecost occurred. You see, the events of Pentecost are not a story as a whole in themselves. They are a scene in a larger story. So, I mean, just think about this. A man kisses a woman who's asleep in the woods. Well, what happens next? Who knows what happens next, right? Scott Hansen might be called next to defend the man, right? <laughs> um, as a lawyer. But if you knew that the man is Prince Philip and the woman is Sleeping Beauty, it's a total different set of events that occurs next. Well, what, what does Pentecost mean? Well, it all depends on what the story is that it's a scene within. So for this morning, let's pick up that larger story by going back 1,500 years before all the wind and fire of Pentecost, all the way back to a day when a dude by the name of Moses was walking around in the wilderness. He was a shepherd, and he's around this mountain called Sinai. And he comes up on a bush that's burning. But the fire is not destroying the bush. In fact, we learn very quickly that this fire is an instance of God's presence on earth. Like we talked about last week, heaven and earth are not two different locations, right? When Russia sent Sputnik into space, they said, we've been there, God's not up there. Now, they were poking fun at a childish fairy tale view of the way the universe was built, with God up off somewhere out past a formerly called, former planet called Pluto. Now, it's something else, Russ tells me. We know that's not what it is. What the Bible tells us is that heaven and earth are not two different locations or two different dimensions of the same reality. They're overlapping and they're interlocking. And here on this occasion, when Moses happens upon this burning bush and this fire is an instance of God's presence, in this moment, the veil that normally separates heaven and earth has been unzipped. And Moses, with his feet firmly planted on earth, encounters God's dimension, God's presence in the form of fire. Very important. If the day of Pentecost is a scene and a story, that's very important. 
that God appeared as fire. Now God tells Moses in this meeting he has with him to go back to Egypt where Moses used to live and to rescue his people, the Israelites who are slaves in Egypt and bring them back to this very mountain where he's encountering God, Mount Sinai, so that they can worship God. So Moses does that. Moses goes back to Egypt, the land where he was raised, and he rescues the people of Israel out of their slavery, and he brings them to the base of this mountain, to Mount Sinai. And when they arrive, lo and behold, God descends upon the mountain. Not, it's not that God was out past Pluto and he took the night bus and, okay, and he gets to this little piece of real estate in Palestine. No, it's that the veil was unzipped again. And, and we describe it. Uh, philosophers would say in phenomenological language, we describe it the way it appears, but it's appearing is really to help us grasp it. It's not that God was elsewhere. It's when you say the president of the company has come down to see me. Well, he might not have come down from an, from some higher place. It just means authority has stepped into your cubicle, right? Okay. So here is God. He descends on the mountain and when he does, Notice how it's described. Thick clouds, lightning, thunder, smoke. This is important because it's all one big story. And what does God do? Well, God tells the people of Israel that they have to live a certain way. And he gives them those rules. Primarily the Ten Commandments. And he not only gives them rules for how to live, he gives them instructions to build a big tent. A giant tent, an enormous tent called a tabernacle. A tent that they can pack up and carry because they're nomads. Now, what happens when Israel finally gets its act together and builds this tent that God had told them to build. This tent that God said was going to be sort of like um, a portable sanctuary. Well, just like with the burning bush and just like with the cloud over the mountain, the God who fills all of heaven and earth is going to be present with Israel in a unique way in the tent. This will be the location of God's concentrated presence. So as the people of God journey through the land, they take this tent with them. And this tent will be the spot on terra firma where heaven actually overlaps with earth and is unzipped. That veil. So the people of Israel build the tabernacle. And the book of Exodus, the the second book in the Bible, it concludes with the presence of God filling the tabernacle. Listen to Exodus chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Skip down to verse 38. For the cloud of the Lord was on the tabernacle by day. And listen close. Fire was in it by night. In the sight of all the house of Israel, 
throughout her journeys. Now, once again, when you read the story like a single story, when you recognize that the Bible is a single capacious narrative, and you're reading it like you read John Grisham or whoever you're reading, you begin to notice when God shows up, when God's presence fills his place, there's fire. Fast forward about 500 years, Israel has settled down from their nomadic movements. They've settled in the land. They've built a new permanent replacement of the tabernacle. They've built a temple. And when they dedicate the temple, God descends upon the temple just like he descended on the bush, just like he descended on the mountain, just like he descended on the tabernacle. He descends on the temple. Listen to how this moment is described in 1 Kings chapter 8. When the priest came out of the holy place, the very center place of the temple, a cloud filled the house of the Lord so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud. For the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. Now from here on out in the Old Testament and in the history of Israel, the temple is regularly described as the place On earth, where heaven and earth most intermingle. Where God's dimension and man's dimension overlap and the veil between them thins out. Now, of course, Israel fully understands that the God who created everything isn't contained by that temple. They're they're never confused about that. They know that they're worshiping the God of all the universe. But in some mysterious and strange way, he concentrates his presence in the temple. The temple, it it becomes the primary place where heaven and earth merge. Now... After this enormous event, the people of God betray God. Not once, not twice, but time and time and time again. And after 400 years of betrayal, after 400 years of God mercifully giving them second and third and fourth and fifth and sixth chances, he says, enough. And in one of the most painful and emotionally devastating events in the history of the world, one of Israel's prophets by the name of Ezekiel sees God leave the temple. How? In the form of smoke, wind, and fire going out of the temple. Now, if you're reading this as a narrative, what does that mean? When Ezekiel the prophet sees smoke, wind, and fire leaving the temple, leaving Israel, what does it mean in the, according to the narrative? It means that this thing that God had concentrated his presence, he is now in discipline of his people left. Israel has lost the presence of God. And from that point on, for the next several hundred years, part of God's primary message to Israel through his preachers, through the prophets, is that he will return. That this is not a permanent movement away. Listen to how Ezekiel in chapter 37 verse 27 gives this promise to Israel. God says, my dwelling place shall be with you again. I will be your God 
and you shall be my people. Now that's a brief sketch of an enormous story, leaving out tons of important details. But this is the basic texture of the narrative within which the events of Pentecost, Acts chapter 2, occur. During the time of Christ, the Jewish people were worshipping in the temple, but they were filled with lamentation that they were worshipping in a temple in which God was absent. The Jewish people in the time of Jesus were filled with lament that God has yet to return to his temple. And with that in mind, you can begin to understand the events described by Luke in Acts chapter 2. You, you can begin to see how when wind blows into this room and tongues of fire, like our art committee is representing to us on our walls, when tongues of fire enter this room, and just like the priest in the original temple, it blows them out. And just like in the tabernacle, it pushes Moses out. And just like at the burning bush, where it pushes Moses away from it into Egypt, in the same way, this wind from heaven that fills this room and this fire that settles on these followers of Christ, you can see how when Luke tells the story to Jews, it awakens all of the old stories of what? God has returned to his people To his temple. You see Luke is telling us. That on Pentecost. 2000 years ago. It's not a symbolic thing that occurred. It is an unrepeatable event in history. God returned. To his people. The Lord came back. And filled his temple. This is the pillar of cloud. And the fire coming to lead the people of God. This is the restoration that the Jews have all been hoping for. The one and only true God has at long last come back to lead and to fill his people. And Luke is telling us that a major turning event in the history of of the world occurred 50 days after the resurrection 2,000 years ago. God fulfilled His centuries-old promise to dwell once again in and among his people. But there's a difference this time. It wasn't to a building that the tongues of fire filled. Very carefully listening to Acts chapter 2, what did the tongues of fire settle on? Not the Jewish temple and its holy of holies, but the followers of Jesus Christ. God's dwelling is in a radically new way, not in a building, but in a people. Not isolated to one particular piece of geography. No longer, when we talk about God's temple, no longer are we talking about a single physical building. Israel's tabernacle, then her temple. All along, these were just signposts to something greater. To God's intention to live in His church. Which we use the word church to talk about a building. That's okay because language is very flexible. It can be very thick. But at its core, the church is not the building. It's us. And not just us as individuals gathered together. It's local groups of people who are in fact a church. But why? 
Why did God make this shift? Why did God shift from being concentrated and centralized in a building to being, to filling groups of people that live in cities and communities all over the world and function together as a church? Why did God have so much consistency and yet shift in this way? Well, over and over again, the Bible makes the point that the Spirit of God fills the church of God, not for our own sakes, but for the sake of Jesus' mission in the wider world. In fact, in Acts chapter 2, that moment that God's Spirit returns to His people, they're blown out of the room quite quite literally blown out of the room. And we find them in the street declaring Jesus Christ as the one and only universal creator, the one and only Lord. You see, the church was born with a mission. And when you read the book of Acts, on the first page, the followers of Jesus are in one room in one city, Jerusalem. But when you get to the last page of the book of Acts, they've spread out. They're all over The ends of the earth, which is a euphemistic way of saying the Roman Empire. And the last page of the book of Acts is is Paul in a room in Rome. The whole book is about this geographic movement of Christianity from Jerusalem to the wider setting of Judea, to the neighboring country of Samaria, and ultimately to the ends of the earth. Christianity explodes onto the world scene, crossing geographic and cultural boundaries. Now, where does this leave us in the year 2014, here as Church of the Incarnation in Harrisonburg, Virginia? Well, over the past few years, God has brought our church into being. Because that's what God's Spirit does. Right after we finished the... uh, Reading the psalm together, Sloan, my son over here, we were singing. He leans over to me and he says, Dad, Dad. He says, See, he says, What is this? The Spirit of the Lord renews the face of the earth. That was what we said at the beginning and the end of the psalm. And right in the middle of the psalm, in verse 30, when you send forth your spirit, they are creating, you renew the face of the ground. He said, Dad, is, is that what happens when Jesus returns? It's not. It's what's happening right now, all over this world, through the church. This is what the Spirit of God does. He births churches in cities and in rural areas, in mountains and in valleys and countries all over this world. The Spirit of God renews the face of the ground. How? By birthing churches. That's what he did on the day of Pentecost. You read the book of Acts, they're not going around sharing the gospel. They're going around planting churches and sharing the gospel. Jesus says in the Great Commission, go into all the world and make disciples of all nations. How? Baptizing, which is what we're going to do this morning. Baptism is an individualistic event. It's what the church does. This is how the Lord is renewing the face of the ground, by planting churches. And that's what God has done with us, our church. we, We haven't had our fourth birthday yet. That's coming up in October. I mean, think about this. This is a remarkable thing to me as I've been getting ready for this day. Uh, Just a few years ago, you know, there was 13 or so adults and twice that many children gathered in our living room. 
on Campbell Street. And before I got here, there was this group of people. And then we moved into this other building. And then by God's incredible mercy, he led us to buy this building and to renovate this building. And here we are. Why is God doing this? Why has God blessed our church so richly? I mean, it really is a remarkable thing. All the labor we've done for incarnation, God, it's been like uh, planting in really fertile soil. God has just uh, given us more fruit than we labored. It's been easy. It's not always going to be that way, but in his providence, the last several years, he's just blessed. Why has God done this to renew the face of the ground? That's what his spirit does. Why? Why has God birthed our church? For the sake of his mission in the world. We, the church of the incarnation, we've been brought into being to participate with God in his mission. Now, what is that mission? It's to renew the face of the ground. What is that mission for us at the church of the incarnation? It's for this valley and this city and this community to flourish. To flourish the way the Shenandoah Valley was created by Almighty God to flourish. That's why we're here. Now how exactly do we go about this? How exactly does God actually heal the face of the ground through the church? Well, two things. Number one. By living here in this particular local community. God heals the face of the ground through each one of us discovering and living out our own unique identities, our own unique callings. To be a disciple is to be conformed into the image of Jesus and that means you become truly human and truly yourself. Each one of us who has been baptized into God's church, into the family of God, each one of us, our job is to bring into this world, in our own unique ways, the message and reality and the love of God's kingdom. Now, that's a tricky thing. You know, Gratian, his job is to know what Who he is. So that he can bring the unrepeatable uniqueness of himself as a gift to this world. As an agent of the king. Because that is the way that God is healing the face of the ground. And that's a very different way than it is for me. For Glenn. Glenn's gift to this world is different than my gift to this world. Now let me tell you very quickly. Four things you can do to discover your calling. To discover how God wants you to be you in his world. Number one, scripture. Immerse yourself in scripture. See, you don't ask what is my role in the world so much as asking God, you're doing something in the world and how do I fit in that? How do I fit in that thing? In scripture, time and time again, God meets with his people and calls them each individually into who they're called to be. Number two, the table. Nourished on Christ. Over and over again. This is what Christians around the world have done. They gather on Sundays around table and around word. Around scripture and around communion. In scripture the Bible says Jesus washes his body. We're the body of Christ. And at the table he nourishes his body. Immerse yourself in scripture. 
come frequently over and over again to the table to be nourished by God. Number three, prayer. God in his providence has chosen the mechanism of prayer to be the way his people discover who they're called to be. You immerse yourself in scripture. You come to the table to be nourished. You go to the Father in prayer. And number four, get very close to the poor. This this fourfold thing is the way the people of God, time and time again, have discovered the voice of God. Through scripture and table. Through prayer and the poor. Because it's in the poor as we get as close as we can, as we labor for them and on their behalf, that Jesus promises us he's there. And he speaks to us. And as we as a church learn as individuals and as an institution to be deeply focused on word and table, prayer and the poor, we will hear God calling us as an institution into our unique role in this city. And you will hear God calling you as an individual into your unique role. Those four things are baseline ways in which we hear God calling us to who he wants us to be. And it's as he works through us that he indeed renews the face of the ground. So when Sloan asked me, dad is renewing the face of the ground. Is he going to do that? When's he going to do that? Is that when he returns? I said to him, no, Sloan, it's when you forgive your sister. It's when you live in this world as a child of God. That was all I had time for, basically. No, it's when you forgive. I thought that was a good starting point for a family of seven. So, how does God renew the face of the ground through the Spirit? By working in us, as each of us, as individuals, move out into the world in our own unique ways. Second thing. We live here in this particular local community, not only as individuals discovering what we're called to do, as a church discovering who we're called to be, but we live here in this particular local community according to the particular commandments and rules of the ascended Lord. Holiness, obedience, submission, to the laws of God. Listen to how Ezekiel, remember I've read several times from Ezekiel already. Ezekiel talking about what it's going to be like when the Spirit of God returns to his people. Listen to how he describes God's work in and through the church. I will sprinkle clean water on you. What is he talking about there? Baptism. Those of you who grew up in churches that pour and churches that immerse, look, pouring. In baptism, immersion in baptism and sprinkling are all three in the Bible. Pick any one of them. They're all three deeply rooted. So listen, Ezekiel says there's coming a day when it's not going to be about circumcision anymore. It's going to be about baptism. I will sprinkle clean water on you and you will be clean from all your uncleanness and from all your idols. I will cleanse you. This is exactly what Peter said on the day of Pentecost when he said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. This is the same thing. In just a few minutes, we're going to see Malloy, Sankoy baptized and Gratian, Coors and Gabe Napotnik. And when the water is poured on them, God is going to do something to them. He's going to clean them. But then listen to what it says. Listen to what God says in the very next sentence. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. 
And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. To be very careful to obey my rules. The gift of the spirit is not only about being forgiven of your sins and empowered to do great things. It's also being given the power of God to obey God. You see, the Holy Spirit gives you two things. It gives you a new identity and fresh moral energy to obey God's rules. Of which, pound for pound, in the New Testament, there are more than there are in the Old Testament. But there's this difference. The Spirit of God is living inside of us, strengthening us so that we can obey. You see, the witness of the church in this community consists, as it always has, of living in faith. And hope and love. Putting into practice the generous self-giving love which is at the core of Jesus' message. Living out the Beatitudes day in and day out. Demonstrating to the world that there is indeed a different way to be human. A way of charity and chastity. A way of patience and prudence. A way of joy and justice. Demonstrating to our community through our lives that this way of being human... Where we treat our money differently, and we treat our bodies and sex differently, and we treat our neighbors differently. That this way of being human really does work. That it really is life-giving. That God's rules aren't arbitrary, abstract things designed to take away our fun. But they are the grain of the universe. And if we will yield to it, we will discover life the way it was made to be lived. And that this way of living is life-giving. And it is creative and cheerful and colorful. And it bubbles up like the Spirit all over the place. The whole life of our church is the way the Spirit of God is renewing the face of this valley. And not just our church, but lots of churches in this city. The life of our church in our inward facing acts of forgiveness and care for one another. And in our outward facing acts of mercy and generosity and justice, and compassion. This is how the Spirit of God is renewing the face of the earth. And as we do this, God is going to judge us. He's going to shine the light of His Word on the parts of our heart that are cross-grained with the universe. He's going to shatter us over our own sins. And as we turn to Him in repentance, believing in His forgiveness, He heals us. He comforts us and strengthens us and he remakes us and he restores us into his image so that we can live out and breathe out and speak out and pray his kingdom into this community with all of its beauty and with all of its brokenness. Church of the Incarnation, we exist for the glory of God and for the good of this community. And we can do that. Because we have the Spirit. Let's pray.